Morning everyone, how are we okay? No one wants to be in here this morning, do they, with the weather like this outside? It's been lovely, hasn't it? Okay, I don't know about you, but uh, I love Tom and Jerry cartoons. Everyone loves Tom and Jerry cartoons, don't they? Whether you're two, year old, two years old, 102, everyone likes a Tom and Jerry cartoon. They might be 70 years old, uh, but they're classic. One of the things that I love about them is... Um, when either Tom or Jerry prepares like an ambush for the other one. So you might see Jerry in his little hole in the wall house home thing and you know that if he leaves the hole in the wall there's like all these mouse traps, all these things that are just going to be chucked at him that uh, Tom has organised. Or you might see Tom walking along and Jerry's prepared all this stuff that if he just turns around the corner then he's just going to get absolutely pelted. I love it anyway. The story we're going to look at from Acts 10 uh, this morning is uh, a story about Peter, the apostle, and it's about God ambushing Peter and totally transforming the way that he thinks about what he has to do now after Jesus has left in telling people about Jesus. There is no escape for Peter in this story, and we get to see it as it builds up. A bit like in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, you know what's around the corner, you know what's happening, and the way that the story is told in Acts 10 helps us to see what is going to happen to Peter, and you know that he's going to get cornered by God, and he's not going to be able to change his thinking. He's going to be forced down an avenue that originally he wouldn't have gone down, but actually God, in his kindness and love, ambushes him. So before we get into Acts 10 and go through the passage, we need to uh, just understand a few things together. So uh, there's a bit of an explanation that we need, uh, and it's really about Peter's attitude to who Jesus came to save when he came, because Peter's attitude, as most of the early believers at that time who were Jewish would have thought, was that Jesus came for primarily the Jews. And the gospel that they were started to preaching, telling the story about Jesus, was, was for Jews. And it wasn't for people who weren't Jews, non-Jews, who they called Gentiles. And we need to understand why Peter might have been thinking that, okay? And the background to that is really how the Jews thought at the time. So before Jesus was born, the Jews had this idea that they should keep themselves separate from the other people around them, from the nations and the peoples around them. They should try and keep themselves um, pure and clean and just to relate to one another, to hang around with one another, to have relationship with one another, one another and not to mix with, not to um, have friendships, not to relate to people who are not Jews because in that way they could kind of try and keep their faith with God and keep their obedience to God. And that's how they thought their religion worked at the time. And that really was because uh, throughout the Old Testament, the history is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, had trouble keeping themselves dedicated to God. They would always be um, veered off this way or that way by, by things that were going on outside of their country and maybe other nations. They would be tempted to, to go different ways rather than serving God. And I think quite naturally for us humans, what they decided was the only way to be totally dedicated to God was actually just to mix with themselves, to not mix with other people, not have anything to do with anyone that might distract them. And the trouble is that that process led to a very kind of exclusive attitude that they had towards themselves as Jews, as the chosen people, 
but also towards other people who weren't Jews. And it meant actually they looked down on people who weren't Jews. They looked down on them. They would call them dogs. They referred to them in very kind of denigrating ways. Um, a, A Roman historian at the time called Tacitus said about the Jews, they regard the rest of mankind with all the hatred of enemies. And so this is the kind of mindset that the Jews had. They were very anti-everybody else and just wanted to be for themselves. And so when these early Jews then became Christians and followed Jesus, they still had this mindset that actually the Jews were the chosen people, that Jesus just came for the Jews, and that that's what they were to be about. And Peter was one of, it was in that position himself. That's how he thought. Even though he'd spent three years with Jesus, He still had that mindset. But God wanted to do something about that. God wanted to decisively change that mindset that he had. And so this is a decisive moment. Acts 10 is a pivotal moment in the the book of Acts. Because before that, it's the story of the early church trying to reach Jews with the gospel of Jesus. But here in Acts 10, we have the pivot where now the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is now shared with those who aren't Jews, with Gentiles. And the way that God does that is remarkable, and we're going to look at that this morning as we go through it. Okay? Sounds good. Right, let's get into the passage then. Acts 10, starting at verses uh, 1 and 2. So, God prepares the ambush. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Okay, so introduction to our first character, Cornelius. He's a centurion in the Roman army. He's a soldier. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile, but he believed in God. And there were many people around Israel who were not totally Jewish, but had a belief and a faith in God. He obviously sees something attractive in this religion in Israel. And so he prays, it says, and he gives his money to the poor and as, as an act of worship. And he may even have attended the synagogue on occasion, but he wasn't fully Jewish. And so for someone like Peter, we need to understand that... Um, Cornelius is not someone that Peter would have related to or associated with because he would have wanted to kind of keep to Jews. And so it's forbidden for people who are Jewish to to relate to someone like Cornelius, even though he was interested in the faith. They had to be very careful in their customs and traditions. Okay, so that's Cornelius. Let's move on in the passage. Verse 3, it says, One day at about three in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, so while Cornelius is praying, an angel suddenly appears to him. And probably as would have been the case for you and I, he was terrified. I think if an angel appeared to me while I was praying, I probably would have a similar reaction. 
But his response to the angel is one of complete obedience. You'll notice there's no hesitation about his response to what the angel has instructed him. He immediately calls two servants and a soldier who is also a believer and sends them straight away to angel, just as the, sorry, sends them to Peter just as the angel has instructed him. And it may well be because he was a soldier, he responded in this obedient way. Soldiers are taught, aren't they, that when the commanding officer gives you orders, when you're given instructions, then you follow them, don't you? And actually, the Bible is full of encouragements about us being like soldiers and responding to Jesus in the same way. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he encourages Timothy to be like a soldier, wanting to please his commanding officer. That should be his attitude towards Jesus. And even in the Gospels, Jesus commends a centurion that he meets for his faith and obedience and his understanding of what authority is. So there's a commendation for us to consider how we relate to Jesus for us to be like soldiers with a commanding officer and have that quick, immediate obedience. And as I read this and thought about it, I was challenged and thought, well, is that how I respond to Jesus? Am I quick to be obedient when I feel he's asking me to do something or calling me to something? I don't know about you, but I know that my response isn't always yes straight away. Do I have that same kind of soldier's attitude to Jesus when he instructs me? Okay, let's move on to verse 9. God starts to prepare Peter for the ambush. It says in verse 9, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey, so these are the messengers that Cornelius has sent, and approaching the city where Peter was, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So this is the next day after Cornelius has has met the angel. Uh, And we know that because it takes that long for the messengers to have got to Joppa. Uh, It's about 40 miles away. And um, so the messengers are nearly there. And Peter is staying at Simon Simon the Tanner's house, just as the, the angel has predicted. And he's doing probably what he normally would have done at this time, is to find a quiet spot and pray. And a quiet spot uh, in that place was on the rooftop. But he has no idea of the ambush that is just about to take place and what God is going to do. It's like that moment where um, Jerry's still in his house and he doesn't know what's outside the door, but we know. And so we get a glimpse on what God is about to do because God has been working already 40 miles away to, to bring these messengers to Peter. So let's just take a a few comments about uh, where Peter's staying as well, because uh, hopefully this will be helpful for us. So he's staying in Simon the the Tanner's house, and a tanner would have worked with dead animal skins, with hides, and prepared those. And again, in Jewish custom, he would have been someone who would have been considered unclean because of the work that he did. And so for someone like Peter to actually stay in his house actually would have been unheard of. It's not something that he would have done. So it already seems like God is kind of working on Peter to kind of chip away at these kind of entrenched customs that he would built up. And so the fact he's staying with him, maybe there's a, there's a chink there that God is already working on his heart. The other interesting thing about Joppa is that in the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah, you know Jonah and the whale? Jonah um, was given a message by God to give to the Ninevites. 
and Jonah didn't want to do it and runs away. And it was actually at Joppa that he takes a boat and heads off across the Mediterranean. And so there's a nice comparison here between Jonah in the Old Testament asked to give a message to, to the people in Nineveh running the other way from Joppa, but actually here Peter in the New Testament being asked to give a message to the people and actually being obedient and full of the Spirit and obeying and then taking the message to those people. Let's continue the verses to find out what happens next. So in verse 11, it says, He saw, this is Peter on the rooftop, He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So Peter's praying and gets this bizarre vision. What is the vision about? What is the meaning of it? Well, the animals that Peter sees in this, on this sheet um, are animals that are a mixture of those that would have been allowed for the Jews to eat and those that would have been forbidden for them to eat. And Leviticus 11 in the Old Testament lists all the animals that they are allowed to eat and they're not allowed to eat. And so the, the, the animals here are a mixture of those animals. Some of them they'd be allowed, some of them that they wouldn't. And so Peter's understandable natural inclination is therefore to say, no, surely not, Lord, I, I can't eat all these animals. Some of them are unclean. It was against all he understood in his Jewish custom and thinking. But he says no only once. I don't know if you noticed that. He says no, but he only does it once that's recorded. And it's as if Peter knew it was not wise to say no to Jesus. The Gospels record actually quite a few occasions where Peter does say no to Jesus and it's almost like he's learned his lesson. He knows how this one plays out. In Matthew 16, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he must die and Peter says, never Lord. And Jesus responds quickly with a rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. He'd have remembered that, I'm sure. It's one of those moments Peter would have remembered Another time, just before he dies, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet as an act of service to them. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus makes it clear to him, unless he washes his feet, he will have no part in his kingdom. I don't know about you, but I find it uncomfortable saying no to God, but I know that I do do it. I remember a time when I was a a university student um, a little while ago. And uh, I, I was studying geography, so we didn't get that many lectures in geography. You know, it was maybe four or five lectures a week. So it meant that, you know, I could just lie in and, uh, you know, take the morning easy before I had to think about doing any work. And I remember God challenging me about getting up in the morning early and praying. I mean, early, it was like 7 a.m. I mean, if God said that to me now, I'd be, yeah, 7 a.m. would be great. But uh, at the time, that was a really big deal. Um, and months went by and I didn't do it and I refused. It's like, no, no, God, it's far too early. I'm not doing it. 
But you know, eventually I did say yes. And actually those times, as I look back now, were really great times of praying with God. I know that he did a lot in me, in my heart. He changed me. He taught me a lot. He met with me in those prayer times. And actually, uh, it was really something that um, that has stood me in good stead, I think, and, and has helped me in many ways. And it just got me thinking about the other ways that we might be saying no to God in. And I don't know about you, are there things maybe that God is speaking to you about that you know in your heart you're you're just saying no to God at the moment? And uh, like Peter, maybe you're saying it once, but actually there's a lesson for us to just uh, be willing to say yes and say, no, actually, Lord, I know that you love me, that you know the best for me, you know what's good for me. And so if you're calling me to do something, then... I don't want to keep saying no, because actually I know that what you have for me is good. But it's not easy, is it? How are we responding? Even though Peter in the story only says no once, you you can tell that he's still puzzled by the vision. He still doesn't quite get what's going on. And he's wondering about its meaning. What does it mean for me? What's God saying in this vision of the animals Maybe he's thinking, well, maybe I should just change my lunch order that I've just given. Maybe it's something else he wants me to eat for lunch. Or maybe it's like a new diet that he wants me to go on. It's, it's the reptile diet. You can tell that he's perplexed by it. But he actually doesn't, doesn't get much time to wonder what the vision means. Because quickly, God begins the ambush. Let's read it on in verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision... The spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So Peter isn't given much time here to really ponder what the vision thinks. Already God has um, brought these messengers along, so it actually doesn't give him much time. The Spirit interrupts him and tells him to go down and to see these messengers and to go with them. And to his credit, Peter does respond He doesn't refuse or question. He finds out the men's story, but he quickly decides to go. And you can imagine that the penny is starting to drop in Peter's mind about what this vision might be and the whole implications of it. The fact that he's welcomed these visitors into the home that he lives with shows that he's actually welcoming them. He's not going to sort of go against it. But Peter can't escape. God has definitely ambushed him. So, the ambush takes place, the second part of it, verse 24, says, The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. So not only has God sent him to Cornelius' house, 
When he arrives, he hardly has time to really consider the situation before him and that he finds himself in because suddenly he's thrust before a large crowd of people and they're expecting him to speak to them. And from what he says, we can see that actually the penny is dropping in Peter's mind. He knows it's not about a special diet that God wants him to go on. Actually, it's about who God wants him to um, speak the gospel of Jesus to. It's about considering Gentiles no longer unclean. So in verse 28, he says, He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Peter at this point has got his hands up to God and saying, God, you've got me. I know that this is what you're asking me to do. And he was so challenged in his thinking. And you can imagine even the journey that he's just taken from Joppa to Caesarea. He's puzzling over, what is it, God? Maybe he's asking these messengers about their faith and the faith of Cornelius, the centurion. Maybe he's got the last words of Jesus also ringing in his head that says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's understanding the implications of what he's now hearing. And now he stands in Cornelius' house in the company of people, probably from many nations. He has this opportunity straight away to tell people from all, all across that part of the world about Jesus. And he knows what God is asking him to do. So he begins to preach the good news to them. Verse 34 says, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is a great recorded summary of the gospel, isn't it? This is the message that if you're a Christian here today, you've responded to. This is the good news of Jesus. And it's explained in such a helpful way, I think, that in a few verses, Peter articulates exactly what this good news is. And I think for us, it's quite a good example of actually how to communicate it. He combines the historical Jesus, the fact that he lived, he died, he rose again and was seen. Their personal witness that they actually saw him and what the spiritual implications of that are. If you're here today and you'd not describe yourself as a Christian, then this is a great summary of what we have come to believe and what we would want to uh, communicate to you this morning. That Jesus was a historical figure, that he died, 
uh, that he, he, um, he died on a cross that wasn't deserved, that he did rise again and that people saw him. There were many witnesses to that fact. We would want to tell you that we have come to believe in this story for ourselves and that for us, we know now that our sins are forgiven. All the things that we've done wrong, all the thoughts that we've had, all the actions that we know are wrong, they're all um, forgiven and wiped clean by God. We would want you to know that we're now in a wonderful relationship with God because of these things that has transformed our lives. That we no longer live with guilt and shame. But we know that all the things we've done wrong are completely wiped clean. And we know that we have a future to look forward to. That we're hopeful for the future and not fearful about what might come. I wonder if that's the case for you and you've not responded to that message. How you will respond this morning to this message. Maybe you'll respond like the people in Cornelius' house did on that day. Let's pick it up in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter from Joppa were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. The final act in God's ambush takes place. Not only has he prepared these messengers from Caesarea to turn up just at the moment that he gives him a vision and he quickly goes to them. Not only does as soon as he walks into Cornelius' house, he's presented with a large crowd and he has to respond and speak to them and tell them about Jesus. But even before he's finished his message, they respond in faith to what what he is saying. They're convinced by what he is teaching them. They respond and start spontaneously praising God and speaking tongues in other languages. God had worked this so that Peter was convinced at this moment that the gospel was for these people just as as much as it was for the Jews. Peter and his friends are amazed at what they're seeing. Peter is reminded of Pentecost and the day that the Holy Spirit fell on them, of how it caused them to praise God and speak in other languages and tongues. When he refers to this this taking place in the next chapter, when he's in front of the leaders in Jerusalem, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? Peter knows that he's cornered. What can he do? God finally shows Peter that actually this gospel is open to everyone. It's not just for the Jews. God deals with the prejudice in his heart and the racism that's there in a way that means he has to change those wrong beliefs. He's cornered, isn't he? He holds his hands up to God and say, Lord, I can see now that this gospel is for everyone. And it's a crucial moment, as I say, in the early church. And God makes sure that Peter gets the message, doesn't he? What is it then through this story that we can learn? What can we take away from this great story of Peter? I think there's a couple of things really, learning points for us. I think God 
wants us here in Mosaic to reach out to all kinds of people, doesn't he? Without prejudice, without any barriers in the way. And I wondered if there are people that we feel uncomfortable to reach out to in this way. Maybe there are people you know in your own heart that you feel hardened towards. You don't feel quite as willing to strike up conversations, to befriend, to spend time with. Because our culture causes us to think in certain ways, don't we? And we're not immune from that. And there are many groups in our society who are demonised in, in, in many ways. There are people from other countries. There are asylum seekers. There are people who are homeless on the streets. There are prostitutes. There are people who have been in prison. There are paedophiles. There are all kinds of different groups in our society that culturally we have barriers to. And we shouldn't be naive to the fact that that can seep into our thinking as well, can't it? So I wonder, are there people that you know in your heart it's difficult for you to reach out to? Recently at work, I've been getting to know a guy um, who I work with and uh, I found out early on he's a Muslim. And so I wondered how this was going to work out, of, of us relating together. And um, we, we built up a friendship and getting to know one another. And as I got, got to know him better, I found out that he was also gay. And so it just made me pause and think, how, how's this going to go? People who are gay don't always think positively of Christians. You know, I think the church has a history here. And how is this going to be played out? And I wasn't too sure. And in my heart, I just wondered what, what was going to work out. But actually, I've had some really great conversations with him. And uh, particularly talking about fasting. And actually, there's a lot of common ground there about fasting for God. And, and that sense of denying yourself food to focus on God and relying on him. And it's actually brought some really fruitful conversations with him. Whereas at the start, I wasn't too sure how that was going to work out. God wants to break down our prejudices, doesn't he? And he's calling us to reach out to all kinds of people in this city. So can you think of maybe people you know, friends, neighbours, colleagues at work, students you're studying with, families, other parents you see at the school gate, who you know in your heart you just have a bit of a struggle. There's a bit of a barrier there, culturally, socially. God wants to break down those barriers in our, in our thinking, doesn't he? Just as he did with Peter. And so there's a challenge for us this morning, I think, that if we're going to be welcoming to everyone, not show favouritism... Because God's heart is that he reaches everyone, isn't it? The second lesson I think that maybe we can learn is that Cornelius and Peter, both in this story, go through a process of having revelation from God, either Cornelius with an angel visiting him or Peter with his vision, that they both respond to in faith and obedience, which then leads to fruitful mission. And for, for me, that seems to be a good pattern to follow. And I wonder if it's a pattern that we should pursue more as a gathering to allow God to speak to us about where he wants us to be and, where, and who he wants us to reach out to and how we respond to that in faith and obedience and seeing fruit from that. I was really struck at this citywide celebration a few weeks ago um, that was here. Kate from Holbeck in the South Gathering talked about how she felt prompted by God um, to reach out to the youth in Holbeck. And so she responded in faith and obedience and helped to organise a big youth event 
And subsequently to that, there are 20 or so youth who are gathering weekly to find out more about Jesus. She's seeing the fruit of it. Wouldn't it be great if we had similar stories in the gathering here about how God prompted us to do that and we responded. And we need to feel free to pursue those things and to support each other to pursue those things. I think also it's interesting how at the start of the story, when God wants to reach Cornelius and his household, it's not the angel that tells Cornelius what the gospel is and who Jesus is. It might have been easy for the angel to try and explain the gospel to Cornelius. But in God's wisdom, he wants to bring someone else, another human along, to speak to Cornelius in his household about the good news of Jesus. And that's God's plan, isn't it? That through people, he speaks to other people about what the good news of Jesus is. He doesn't have a plan B. That's his plan A. And that involves you and me, doesn't it? And so there's a challenge also for us about how we embrace that and how we respond to that, just as Peter and Cornelius did in their way. Let's just take a moment and uh, just reflect on these things, shall we, and pray. I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. And if the band wants to come back up, um, then we're going to sing together as well. Just want to close your eyes or just bow your heads. Father, we thank you for this story of Peter and Cornelius. And even though it's a story about Cornelius' conversion, actually it's a story about Peter's conversion in his thinking. And Lord, we thank you that you don't let us just uh, keep hold of prejudices in our hearts and in our thinking, but you're committed to all of us having open hands, reaching out to everybody without favoritism, just as you are. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is for everybody, that your love extends to everyone, that your desire is that everyone should come to know you. And I pray, Lord, for us in the gathering here that you would help us to reach out to the people who maybe at the moment we feel uncomfortable with. We know that there are barriers in our thinking, Lord. Would you help us to break down those barriers, help us to reach out to people, all different kinds of walks of life, Lord. And Lord, would you speak to us and would you lead us about how you might want us to reach out to people, who you might want us to go to. Lord, help us to respond to you as you reveal your purposes to us with faith and obedience, just like Peter and Cornelius did. And would we see similar fruit? Would we see a similar reaction to people as they saw with people turning their hearts to you? Lord, we know you're the answer. Would you gather people to recognize that and see that? And would you use us in that, Lord Jesus? Amen. Amen. It would be great if we respond, if you'd like to stand, and we're going to sing together.